Thanks, team. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, I would love for you to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 11. And we're going to be kind of jumping down in the middle of this book. One of my goals this year in, in preaching and the sermons that God's given me is that I want us to focus on what the church is, what the church does, who the church is, what's our function, what's our mission, what's our purpose. That's kind of where God's leading me. And so as I, as I taught Acts several times and I've scoured it, these passages have popped out to me as something that we, as the church of Jesus Christ, need to know and lean on. And so we're catching them now further down the road. We finished Act, we did Acts 6 last week of the appointing of the seven men to take care of a a desperate internal problem that could have exploded into an ethnic war because of the Hellenist Jews and the Hebraic Jews. But now we're going to see that we go a little further down the road and we're going to see the birth of a Gentile church, which to a Jew who was waiting for the Messiah, the idea that the Gentiles would be able to partake in the Messiah was a foreign concept. And uh, some of them even got angry about it. But we're going to see that happen. They're, they're facing persecution. And it, this is all for us to learn how we should live, how we should function, and what we should focus on as a church. So let me read this passage. Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. Now those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, also proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. News about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And large numbers of people were added to the Lord. Then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. And in those days... Some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the reign of Claudius. Each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. They did this, sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. Let me pray for us. Father... It is a a good story and a good recount of the birth of the Gentile church, especially the one in Antioch. Oh, how you have used that church. And I believe that most of us are sitting here today who have trusted your son are a result of that city's church because they sent Paul and Barnabas and Silas and many out to carry the gospel. So help us to understand this story. Help us to understand what happened here, and what we can imitate as your church. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You know, we hear the word, now the word viral a lot. That went viral. 
You know, you've heard that term. Well, it actually has two meanings. One, it means a, a, a disease or illness or virus spreading really quickly or rapidly. It went viral. But it also means information going viral. Information spreading rapidly and profusely through society. It usually does it by Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, yada, yada, yada. I can go on and on about all the different places that it shows up. Well, you know what? The gospel went viral 2,000 years ago, and it didn't have the internet. It didn't have a phone. It didn't have a telegraph. It didn't even have carrier pigeon. It had persecution. That's how come the gospel spread. So we're going to kind of look at what happens here. Persecution pushes the disciples out of Jerusalem into the surrounding area called Judea, and then eventually pushes them on north of there and, and every other place, and it pushes them out there. And as they go, as they go, they tell people the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. As they go, they do that. And they spread the word. And, and because of that, a church is born. And so today, we want to see that, that churches start because Jesus' disciples share his gospel. They share his gospel with people anywhere, under any condition. Just like those North American Mission Board church planters. They're, they're in places where they're planting the church, wherever they go, talking to whoever needs the gospel. And like he said, life change is slow, but the gospel can do it. So how does the gospel birth a church in this very pagan city of Antioch? How does that happen? What steps set in motion the beginning of the church? Well, they're kind of the same as always. There's not a church out there that didn't start this way. First of all, you speak the truth of the gospel. Then you teach the truth of the gospel, and then you serve as representatives of the gospel. That's what they did here. So first, tell the whole world. Verses 19 through 21, tell the whole world about Jesus Christ. We sing songs about it. We talk about it. We quote the Great Commission. But listen what, what uh, Luke writes in Acts. Now those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, also proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Okay, so let me give you an idea of what's going on here. Stephen's persecution. I don't know if you remember that. Acts chapter 6 and 7, Stephen one of the seven that was serving and helping the widows got stoned because of his faith. He was very vocal, and he was very able to debate the Jews. They got so mad at him, and they began to spread lies that he had blasphemed, and eventually he was stoned to death. And as a result, persecution turned loose. People started beating up all the Christians that they could find, so they fled. In the meantime, Philip, one of the seven, went up to Samaria spoke the gospel there, and these half-Jews, half-other people accepted Christ. There was a gospel born right there. There was a church born right there. So Philip evangelized Samaria. Then he went down and met the eunuch on the road to Ethiopia, and he led him to the Lord and sent him on his way, which carried the gospel to Africa. Then he went up the Mediterranean coast evangelizing. Peter comes out. He gets a chance to heal a man. Then he raises a, a lady from the dead on the, on the Mediterranean coast. And then he meets with Cornelius, a, a Gentile, a Roman. And 
because of two visions, Cornelius' vision and Peter's vision, they get together and Gentiles begin to convert to Jesus Christ. They begin to believe. They begin to trust. They become believers in Jesus Christ. And it's an amazing thing. Peter has to explain it to the Jerusalem Jews. And so you get the story twice there in Acts chapter 10 because they couldn't just accept the fact that Gentiles could become Christians. But we can. So in, And during all of this, there's another man that shows up. His name is Saul. He was a Pharisee. And he was standing there while Stephen was being stoned, approving of their stoning. And then he began to get letters to go and persecute. He, he persecuted the church. He began to kill and imprison people who were Christians, who were believers. He even got letters and was headed to Damascus, which is, which is outside Palestine at that time. He, began to per, he was headed up there to persecute Christians who were there, who had fled there from Jerusalem, trying to get away from the persecution. And on the way, Saul got saved. Jesus appeared to him, and we heard the Damascus Road experience, and he got saved. And God commissioned him in that moment and in that time frame as the apostle, the messenger to the Gentiles. And his story is, is a little convoluted at this point, but he winds up in Tarsus, which is his hometown, which is west of Antioch, where we are. So we'll talk about him in a little bit. But the people that were fleeing Jerusalem after Stephen and, and fleeing Jerusalem after Saul ravaged them, and then they were fleeing the northern areas of Palestine. I mean, the persecution was pushing them further and further. And if you remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. So, world. so God's getting them out. And as they flee the violence, they tell the good news to other Jews. Some of them are Hellenistic, but most of, the, most of, the, of them are probably Hebraic Jews. They're telling them. They're only talking to the Jews. You see that there in that passage. That initially, they're only, they're only witnessing to Jews. And like I said, it could be Hellenistic and Hebraic. Now, the city of Antioch is, a, is an old city. It was founded in 300 B.C. by someone from the Greek Empire. It eventually was taken over by the Romans. It's a lar it was a large city. And it, had, it lasted till somewhere around 1260 A.D., as a, as a main city for different things, the Crusades, the Ottoman Empire. There's a lot of history in Antioch. But eventually it was, it was raised to the ground by a group of people, some term in the, probably in the 1500s. And I just heard recently that the earthquake that happened in Syria and Turkey destroyed all the ruins that they had uncovered in their archaeological digs in the 1930s. So Antioch is pretty much gone now. But the church's legacy lives on. So they come and they speak about the Messiah. And only to their kind, probably because it was comfortable. They could talk about the Messiah to Jews and Jews would know what they meant. Oh yeah. That's one of the things we have to learn is we're talking to people. They may not even know who Jesus Christ is. You may have to explain that. So they were probably doing what would be called comfortable evangelism. They were talking to people who were waiting for the Messiah. Big Jewish population in those areas, Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. There have been big populations of Jews in there since the Greeks had been uh, in, in control of that area. And the Jews, even in Antioch, had some special favor from the Greeks because they helped the Greeks overcome Syria, the Syrians at that time. Just Here's another footnote. If you're reading your, your, the book of Acts, realize there are two Antiochs in the book of Acts. Antioch in Syria and then Antioch in Pisidia. Antioch and Pisidia is not near as big or as friendly to Christianity as Antioch in Syria was. It's just a little tidbit there. Yet there were some Jews that came from the island of Cyprus. 
The island of Cyprus sits just off the Mediterranean coast from Israel and, and Lebanon, and it is, a, it is an island relatively large. And then also from Cyrene, which is a town in northern Africa on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, Cyprus is where Barnabas is from. Cyrene is where the man Simon, who carried Jesus' cross the rest of the way, is from. These men come from these two places, and they arrive in Antioch, and they begin to talk to the Greeks. The Greeks, not the, not the Greek Jews or not the Hellenistic Jews, the Greeks, the Gentiles. They begin sharing about Jesus. They told that God becomes a man to save people's souls from eternal punishment. I mean, that's the essence of the gospel. It's the need of every soul, of every human that's ever lived. And they begin to tell the, the Gentiles. They didn't have to make a reference to Abraham, Moses, David, or Isaiah. They didn't have to talk about the covenants to the Greeks because they didn't care. They didn't know. They had no history. They just needed to know about Jesus. And even if their explanation lacked a lot of clarity that we like, it got the point across. God's hand was on them, and large numbers became Christians. Many trusted Jesus as their Savior. They believed the gospel and turned from their pagan ways. And trust me, Antioch was a pagan city. It was really a pagan city. It wasn't as, probably about as bad as uh, Corinth was, because Corinth I compare to modern-day Las Vegas. But it was a big city with a lot of pagan worship going on. It was a mixture of all kinds of religions, from the Greeks to the Romans. And they all had their version. But as they were pushed out of Jerusalem and Judea north... They shared the gospel, and lots of people became Christians. A large number of Gentiles believed in Jesus Christ. You know, they're, they're telling the gospel as they run away from danger. It reminds me of the videos I've seen of people on the streets in New York City at 9-11, running, just terror on their face, running away from the, damage, the buildings falling or the pieces of the building falling at some point. People are running. And they're telling everybody to turn around and run that with them the other way. They're telling them good news. This is the way to go to get away from the danger. There are even videos of people opening shop doors and, and business doors to let people run in there so they can escape the dust and debris that happened that day. They were giving people hope. They were giving people an escape. They were giving people a way to be saved physically from that danger. Disciples are doing this right here. As they run away from the danger in, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Palestine, and head north, they're telling people as they go, you need to know about Jesus. The reason I'm leaving down there is because of Jesus. We need to do the same thing. Jesus said this in, in Luke chapter 24 as he was getting ready to, to ascend into heaven. He says, thus it stands written that, that the Christ would suffer and would rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations. All nations. See, Jesus is making it very clear. It's all nations, not just Jews. Beginning from Jerusalem, he says, you are witnesses of these things. So as they went, they told. As we go, we should probably tell. We are witnesses. We are witnesses. As we sit here as believers in Christ and we've seen the life changes that's happened in all of our lives, in our own life as well as others, we are witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know that he rose from the dead and that's what we hang on to. And as you and I go, wherever we go, we need to tell all groups of people there is no one to be left out. 
just like the church planner in Minneapolis is doing. Because we need to talk about the gospel because it is for their salvation of their soul. Who was the last person you told the gospel to? Who was the last person that you told that Jesus Christ died and rose for their forgiveness? Was there anybody that you can remember the last time you told someone? I hope so. Now, I'm not talking about inviting to church. That's not the same thing. They can come to church and they'll hear the gospel here for sure. Or not asking them, do you believe in God? Because the devil believes in God, but he's not saved. Or asking them if they went to church as a child or anything like that. No, I mean actually asking them plainly and lovingly, do they trust Jesus for the forgiveness of their sin and the eternal life of their soul? Hopefully you have talked to somebody. Hopefully this is something you try to do as often as possible. Because we walk past people every day who need this message. Every day. I'm, I'm just as guilty of it too. Some, even in this small community, may never have heard exactly who Jesus is, exactly what he did, and why they need to hear it. Many don't know what it means. I, I met a kid in the Bible Belt, didn't know who Jesus was except a cuss word. Our goal here is to give them truth. I'm not talking about convincing them. I have to remind myself to speak it. I have to remind myself to find time out of my schedule, out of my agenda, to talk to somebody about Jesus. Because we all need to be doing it. We all have the best news that's ever been given. We need to sow that seed of faith. We just give them a little bit of the gospel in any way, shape, or form and wait for it to sprout. Now, we can't convince them, and I'm not telling you to do that. You can't persuade them. That's not your job. Your job is to tell them about Jesus. It's like God take care of the rest. He's responsible for the, the production, not us. We're just in sales, in a sense, not in manufacturing. We have to tell them. It's, this, is, this is the role of the church, okay? The church is people not a building. It is people that God saved by Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and joined together by that gospel so as to tell everyone else. The thing that brings us together is the thing that we should be spreading. The thing that brought us here is the thing we need to be giving out. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. And churches can do this in many ways. Send missionaries, sponsor gospel meetings if you want, preach at them if you want. I'm preaching at one in India tomorrow via video. So. But the most important way, and the way I see Jesus doing it mostly, is he tells it one-on-one. -on -one. Jesus spent time one-on-one -on -one with people, telling them about the salvation that they could have. So have you got someone picked out? Who's the one you're willing to tell about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Think about it. Pray about it. Pray for someone. You know, pray for someone that will come into your path that you can develop a relationship with, and in the course of that, talk to them about Jesus. No church survives without telling others about Jesus. It doesn't. Churches that don't evangelize, don't tell the gospel, don't speak the gospel in their communities, they will die. It may be a long, slow death, but they will die. We have a world around us that needs the, 
the Savior. So we need to tell them. Tell the gospel. That's what they did first. The Gentile church was birthed at that point. They grew in large numbers, as it mentioned. And when the gospel was believed, they grew and matured by learning more. And that's what's next. They discipled the believers. Look at this verses 22 through 26. News about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. For he was a good man, full of the Spirit and of faith, and large numbers of people were added to the Lord. Then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. So the Gentiles, like I said, had been getting saved previously, but this was a large group of Gentiles getting saved. And the news traveled south, and Jerusalem heard about it, the Jerusalem church where the apostles were. And so they needed to evaluate. This is just good, conscientious Christianity. Make sure they're not mixing religions, which is a very strong tendency back then. And they, they, they needed to ensure that there was accuracy of the gospel being con- confessed and professed to them. They were given the, the job to protect the truth. We are too. So they sent Barnabas. Now, if you remember from Acts chapter 4, verse 36, he's been introduced already. He was a, his name was Joseph. He was also called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was a native of Cyprus, that island I was talking about, but he was a Jew. He was actually a Levite, one of the priests uh, of, of the Jewish religion. And he knew the gospel well. And he was faithful to the gospel and faithful to the church. Remember, he sold a piece of property and gave the funds to the church. So he arrives, he arrives in Antioch, about 300 miles away from Jerusalem, and he sees God's grace everywhere. His, God's hand is all over that. He's got no doubt these people are coming to Christ. He's got no doubt the Holy Spirit is saving souls there in Antioch. And so he encouraged them, which was his namesake, by the way, so it just made sense, to stay true. In other words, don't return to your pagan ways. Don't return to old rituals and old false gods. Don't combine any religion with Jesus. You don't need it. Every other religion in the world is all about doing what you can do to get to heaven. Christianity, Jesus, is all about what he did to allow you to go to heaven. Don't mix it up. He talks about devoting their hearts to the gospel The Greek word there actually has a meaning that says that which is planned in advance. When you're devoted to something, did you not think and make a decision to plan in advance to stay devoted to that? Your marriage, a lot of other things we've been devoted to, their hearts planned and and were encouraged to plan to stay true to the gospel. And this is the beginning of discipleship. That's all this is. This is where we see it beginning. A believer is a disciple. Every believer is a disciple. I've said that before. You're either an active disciple or you're an inactive disciple. Or you may not even be a Christian. But every believer is a disciple. And they must stay true and they must stay devoted to God's word. That's what the disciple does. A believer is a disciple and must stay true and devoted to the gospel. Barnabas' character convinced them. They saw he was a man full of faith. They saw that he was a man full of the Spirit. It convinced them, okay, if this guy is doing it, it must be some, not some sort of new fad. 
You know, he comes from Jerusalem telling us to do this. And so he convinced them to obey Jesus, to deny themselves, to carry their cross of faith, the gospel cross. And large numbers, disciples, believers, came to faith in Jesus. That's the second mention, time they mention large numbers come to Christ in the Gentile town of Antioch. So telling and discipling grows the kingdom of God. That's why we're here. So Barnabas knew that he needed help, okay? I got all these large numbers. We don't know how many there were, but we got a large number of people coming to Christ. I need some help discipling them. I know just the man. And so he goes over to Tarsus. I don't know how it's probably a couple days walk at least or more. And he goes to Tarsus and he goes and gets Saul. You know him as Paul. It's the same guy, a Greek name versus a Hebrew name. He goes and gets Paul because Paul has been commissioned by God, by Jesus Christ, to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Barnabas introduced him to the apostles in Jerusalem and, and they met him for a while and Barnabas encouraged him and then the, the Jews there began to try to kill Paul because he was a traitor to them. So they sent him off to Tarsus, which was his hometown. So Barnabas went there, searched the city, found Saul, and brought him back to begin his apostolic ministry right there in Antioch. And for a year, they stayed there. I mean, Barnabas uprooted his life in Jerusalem and moved to Antioch. Saul did the same thing. For a year, they sat there, they stayed there and taught and discipled and nurtured these new believers. And they nurtured them to spread the truth and tell people as well as disciple other people and to teach others. Many disciples learned and many disciples grew in their faith. And they became a church right there in that large city, the birth of a Gentile church. Then Luke mentions that the first time that anybody was ever called a Christian was in Antioch. Now, it was not a complimentary term. It actually is a diminutive term, meaning little Christ, meaning you're pretending to be Christ. Or you're, and, and it was really used just to label them, okay? And it was a, usually a negative tone. The word Christian is only used three times in the entire New Testament. And only once is it kind of in a positive way. Peter uses it in his letter. But the two times it's used in Acts is always a, 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 a belittling term. We don't care. I don't care. Discipleship led to more evangelizing, which led to more discipling and more believers, which led to more discipling and more believers. It just continues to grow. That's what churches are supposed to do. You know, in any of our careers or vocations over our lifespan, when we're given a job, we start learning how to do that job. We spend time studying how to do that job. Then we try to learn some more about that job to increase our responsibilities and our knowledge of that job. It's always a, a, a fact Usually with more and knowledge and more responsibilities, you get more benefits. Why don't we do that as believers? So many times we've led someone to the Lord. Someone's come and professed faith in Christ, and they're never encouraged to learn anything else. They may be encouraged to come to a Bible study or something, but no one takes them and says, let me talk to you about a quiet time, about a disciplined life, about disciplining your life according to God's Word. There are certain disciplines in Scripture that we should be teaching others. And it's not meant to be, you know, one superior than the other. It's meant to help someone along. We do it in our vocations. Why don't we do it as believers? Because Jesus sent us out to make disciples. That was his commission. 
So we need to make it our purpose to tell others and disciple believers. Paul tells Timothy this in 2 Timothy 2.2. He says, these things you've heard me say, you've heard me teach in the presence of many men and trust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. And it not just to stop at that level, it keeps going. To teach others, to teach others, to teach others. That's the whole point of us. And in Colossians 1, 28 through 29, he says, we proclaim him, Paul's talking about him and his, his partners, we proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so as to present everyone perfect or complete in Christ Jesus. And to this end, he says, I, I labor, struggling with all his energy which so powerfully works in me. That's what Paul's doing. And he's encouraging the Colossians to do the same thing. We should be duplicating ourselves, if you want to call it that. Making, making disciples. Disciple others to disciple others, to labor mightily for the maturity of souls. That's what we're put here for. That is our calling. So what would you say? <laughs> what would you say if someone, and tell someone, if they came up to you and said, hey, could you disciple me? Could you teach me the Bible? What would be your answer? I hope you have one. Would it scare you? Scare me too. Do you pray that no one asks you that question? <laughs> I hope not, but... You know, our children need it. If you've got children, you need to figure out a way to disciple them. Even if they're not believers yet, you need to teach them about God, about Christ. You know, many people won't ask you to disciple them. I think that's where we as a church in general over the last 60 years have failed. We've led people to Christ. We've got them into the baptistry. And then we've said, okay, welcome to the family. You know, find your little niche, find your little corner, find your pew and hang out with us. We expect them to get it by osmosis. Listen, this is completely contrary to our entire sinful nature that God has, that we have. We've got to battle this. So most people won't ask you. We need to be asking them. And that's what we, we haven't been doing for the last 60 plus years. We haven't been asking people, can I disciple you? Can I help you? You don't even have to use that fancy word of disciple. You can say, can I help you? Do you understand how many books in the Bible there are? Do you understand how they're divided out? Do you understand that John the Baptist and John the Apostle were two different guys? I mean, those are just simple things. And that's a start. So what steps or measures could you take to help them? Do you know? What would you do if someone wanted to be discipled and, and ask you? A lot of us think we don't know how, but it isn't really that difficult. Discipling is just teaching others how to discipline their life according to God's word. And if you've been doing it, you're just teaching them what you do and what you know. You don't, have to get a, you don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to have a degree. You don't have to have a library full of books. Just take your Bible. It's really, it's really simply. Simply teach them what you know and do to be an active, growing disciple of Jesus Christ. Discipling is just teaching others how to discipline their life according to God's word. We just teach them what we know and what we do. And if you don't know what to, you're, you don't know what you know, and you don't know what you do, we need to talk about that. It sounds like a piece of cake, right? Well, it really kind of is. That's, that's how easy it is. As a Christ follower, we're given the tools to do this. You just may never have been shown how to use those tools. And we can do that. I want to teach you. I want to help you. It's simple. Read your Bible 
on a daily, regular basis. Pray to God on a regular, daily basis. Tell others about Jesus as, as often as you can. Obey what you've read. <laughs> a lot of us have read the Bible. We don't have trouble obeying it all. And those are, those are the basic steps. We can talk about a lot more if you want to. The same grace and the same power that saved you is the same grace and the same power that will enable you to teach others, to instruct them on what you do as a believer, how you, how you live out your Christian faith. If we're not disciplining ourselves to live like Christ, we need to. Disciplining ourselves to live out God's word and teach others to do the same, that's what churches do. And you see it right here. They told everybody about Jesus, then they discipled them. Barnabas helped, Paul helped, um, the church helped. We need to tell the good news to anyone we come across. And then we need to disciple them if they have accepted Christ, if they become a believer. I've had some opportunities where I've actually discipled someone before they became a Christian because they're so inquisitive and so curious and want to know so much. But there's always that one step they, they need to make. But then they cooperated together to serve, to serve with one another. Look at verses 27 through 30. In those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the reign of Claudius. Each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. They did this, sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. So for some of you who are wondering what do you mean by down if it's north, that's, that's because they talk in elevation in the, in the Bible, not in direction. They... They don't, they, so when they went down, they went down from Jerusalem down to Antioch because Jerusalem was on a pretty high hill. That's just a, your bit of trivia for today. That didn't cost you anything extra. So while Barnabas and Saul were teaching, while they were discipling these people, these prophets, proclaimers of truth, that's really what, what a prophet is, not necessarily a fortune teller, but a proclaimer of truth came to Antioch. They were providing help, I'm sure, to help them train and, and disciple the church. And then this guy named Agabus, and we'll hear, you'll hear about him later in the book of Acts 2. Agabus received a forewarning about a, fi a famine. And he declared it was going to be over the whole Roman world. Well, it was, but it wasn't all at once. Different areas had famines. And the one that they were specifically focused on was the one over Palestine, Judea, where Jerusalem is. That's what got their attention. I mean, the famines happened for various years, and the hist historical records record all that. But in Judea, it was around 45 A.D., and the famine made life in that region so much more difficult. Think about it. As a Christian you're, that stayed there, you're persecuted, whether you realize it or not. You're not given a job. You're not allowed to buy stuff. I mean, they took persecution to a whole other level. You couldn't buy food. You couldn't buy clothing. You were, you were ostracized. You were eight-balled. You were put out. It was already hard enough to get survival needs. And then a famine hits. But God uses these things, doesn't he? So this church of Gentile disciples who probably had never met any of the church in Judea, each of them decided in their own heart to give something to help the Christians in Judea. They vowed to help that, their eternal brothers and sisters. They collected funds and they sent them by Saul and Barnabas. Saul and Barnabas were trusted agents. They sent them to Jerusalem and Judea to give to the elders in Jerusalem. 
Now, where's that word coming from? We haven't heard that word before in Acts, elders. Well, here's some, here's some more history for you. The seven guys that were picked in Acts chapter 6, one of them was dead for sure. Philip was out evangelizing, and the town had just basically erupted in persecution. So probably more than likely, they had kind of disappeared because the crowds were disappearing. They didn't have a responsibility to feed all of the, the widows and the, and the people. The apostles were still there, but they were probably having to duck and cover and hide because of the persecution. So elders had been appointed. Elders is just a, a word for a pastor, a lay pastor, someone who's not necessarily commissioned as an apostle or a prophet. And they were, they were there to help take care of the people, spiritually as well as uh, physically. So they had to probably set up some alternate leadership. Herod, we're going to see next week, Herod begins to actually get involved in persecuting the church and, and targeting specifically the apostles. But they needed alternate leadership for the church at Jerusalem because the persecution had impacted them. And I believe, and you will see in Scripture as we continue this year, this is the beginning of the structure of a church. Elders and deacons in place. And the Gentile church helped the Jerusalem church, and they both matured and continued to have a kingdom impact. That was the goal, and that worked. You know, our church here, we rally around a need. I mean, it's, all, it's just it's great. Anytime we have a need, we mention it out loud. We get all kinds of stuff and help, and, and that's it's awesome. Um, it's a blessing that how generous our church is. Well, Jesus intended his church to do that, okay? He's the one that said, give, and it will be given to you, a good measure pressed down. Don't hold anything back. He told us to help those inside our body as well as outside our body. James speaks to this, and, and I think Jeremy preached on this passage in chapter 2, verse 15 through 16, that our faith in Jesus must show up in our actions. That's what church is. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if anyone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can this kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat well, but you do not give them what the body needs, what good is it? It's a true, true question. So we need to see a need, we need to fill a need, we need to find someone who can fill a need if we can't fill it. And we help all around this community. It's, it's great. Altamont's Ministerial Alliance of Seven Churches works together to, to provide food, gas, utility help, temporary lodging if necessary. But, you knew that was coming, right? We can always do more. And I'm not talking more physical needs. I'm talking about the spiritual needs. See, the spiritual need department is the most important department. Many in our area need Jesus. We got unchurched people right out here in this little town. People who've never gone to church ever. People who've never been inside a church, never understood what the point of church was. They need Jesus first. The peace and comfort of knowing that God loves them and wants to save their souls. That's their greatest need. We can use the physical needs to address the spiritual needs to, to, as an avenue. It's not a bait and switch. Don't think that. We're not tricking them. We give them what they need, but we also give them what they haven't realized they need, the love and truth of Jesus Christ. 
Their physical needs are temporary, brothers and sisters. Their physical needs will be gone someday. Their spiritual needs last for eternity. And Jesus Christ is the only solution for that. So we need to learn how to share. Share our testimony. Tell people how God changed you, how Jesus changed your life. That's the simplest form of evangelism there is. Nobody can take that away from you. Nobody can argue that out of your, your life. Tell them your testimony. Tell them the gospel helped you while you're helping them. I mean, Jesus did this when he fed the, the 5,000 and the 4,000, when he was preaching to them and he was giving them truth and then they were hungry. He fed them and continued to teach them so they would see their need for a Savior. Let's be a church that wants a relationship with the needy to offer them eternal life in Jesus Christ. From the terror of persecution, a Gentile church comes into existence. That's God. That's all God. It's great. It's wonderful. Believers are discipled. Famine is met with aid. All the churches of Jesus Christ should be like this. We should all be seeking to help in these matters and to work these ways. How did our church get here? 1939? We celebrated 80 years a few years ago. It's now we're almost 84 years old. How did we get here? Because believers met and, and started. Believers in Jesus Christ met and started the church. But how can we make sure that it lasts another 84 years or longer? In 84 years, most of us won't be here. <laughs> Probably all of us won't be here. How can we make sure she lasts? Well, imitate the churches in Acts. This one right here. See the order that happened? Evangelism, discipleship, serving. Boom. Three steps. Three ways to make sure a church stays vibrant and alive and giving God the glory. Spiritual leaders and disciples making disciples while doing evangelism as we meet needs, that's, that's the church of Jesus Christ. That's the body of Christ. It needs to happen. And these disciplines in the proper order will bring glory to God. They will. And they'll magnify Jesus. And they'll build his kingdom. So I'm going to take a time of prayer right now where we time of silent prayer and let's pray for our our hearts to be committed to those things to these dis disciplines to follow god's path for all churches so if you'd like to come to the front and pray feel free to do that we'll have a time of silent prayer and then i'll i'll close us out let's pray